All right, how many of you know what a selfie is? You know what a selfie is? You're cheating because you just watched him do one. It's when you kind of get your phone, you know, and, and I'm going to do one of those right here and see if I, well, let's see. There we go. I just took a selfie of myself. I have my phone on silent, of course, uh, not to create any kind of disturbance. I know many people in here who might call me uh, to disrupt the service today, one of our many wonderful pastors. But anyway, so it's on silent. So a selfie is one of those things that you take a picture and you do it because you want to put it on Facebook so you can show everybody who you are, where you are, and what you're doing. Isn't that right? It's a record of who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. Imagine, in John chapter 20, beginning with uh, the early on set where Jesus appears before this passage that we're reading today where the disciples had at their disposal a cell phone. And imagine in that cell phone they had an opportunity to take a selfie with Jesus, to post it on Facebook so that all could know that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead, that he was not dead but he was alive. Imagine now Thomas coming in several hours later who has missed the entire episode, the entire dialogue, the opportunity to see Jesus risen from the dead, and they are explaining to him, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive. And the reaction that Thomas gives is a reaction that we are familiar with, and that's the reason why I call him, we call him Doubting Thomas which is really an unfair label of Thomas. It really is. Because in reality, in the previous verses in this chapter of John, chapter 20, Mary, who encounters Christ in the garden, fails to recognize Christ at the onset. He calls her by name. She then recognizes that it's Jesus. She has an interaction with him. He tells her to go to the disciples and tell them that he is not dead, that he is indeed risen from the dead. She runs to where she knows the disciples are in their hideout. She tells them exactly what she has seen. I have seen the Lord. He is not dead. He is risen from the dead. And he has told me to tell you that. And the Bible records that the disciples, upon hearing that, doubted Mary's testimony. So why is Thomas the only one who is the doubter? All of the disciples doubted the resurrection of Jesus. And so because all of them doubted, it's, it's not fair to call him doubting Thomas, really. Yet Thomas did doubt like the others. And in fairness to him, he was not present when Christ appeared the first time on that first Sunday, on that first Easter to dispense that darkness and that despondency and that doubt and create faith. He was not present. And so here we see in this dialogue that not only did the disciples previous to this, but Thomas as well as having problems with believing that Christ has been raised from the dead. So I want to I so, I so take a twist on this here today. Two, two twists on this passage. Two applications or two insights. I think there's a passage here that sort of speaks to those of us who have yet to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And there possibly are some here, someone you may know, that part of the reason why they have in, in believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be is that simple fact that they have a hard time believing that he was risen from the dead, that he was raised 
into new life. And they have a hard time with this resurrection thing. And I contend with you that if someone claims to have faith in Jesus, but disbelieve in his resurrection, they are not believers. They are still unbelievers. You must believe in the resurrection of Jesus in order to be saved from your sin and to be promised the eternal kingdom when he returns. The resurrection of Jesus is critical. It is key to our belief and our faith in Jesus. And there are many today who disbelieve, who doubt the fact that Jesus had in fact and has in fact been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and now he is sitting there ready to return someday. They doubt. And so this message can be a message to those who are the doubters in the resurrection. Let's take one step closer to that. There's not only saving faith that saves us from our doubt of the resurrection of Jesus, but I think there is a serving faith in this text that helps us understand as we apply this verse that while yet we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, we often struggle with doubt post-conversion. We do. When the unexplainable happens, the unimaginable takes place, the, the difficult to overcome, or the enemy seems too great, or the hardship becomes too difficult, or the barriers are too hard to overcome, we have a tendency then to look at the barriers or the battles or the enemy or the things that are before us, and we fail to see that Jesus, who has been raised from the dead, can not only conquer and defeat our sin in the past, but the present and the future. And that this risen Christ, the power of that resurrection, not only affects us in our salvation, but affects us how we serve him. For he says that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. James clearly lays out in his book, in the book of James, as he writes to the church, that we must continue to live by faith. It's not just a a pie-in-the-sky thing. It is a life in which we are to live out each and every day, a life in which we walk by faith, not by sight. And we come to faith in Jesus, not by sight, and we continue to live for Jesus, not by sight, but by faith. And we all have a problem with faith, with trust, with confidence in Jesus, and we all struggle with doubt. And there are many in this room, I'm convinced today, who have already in their pilgrimage, in their walk with Jesus, have questioned their own salvation and have doubted this whole concept of the resurrection. For Satan often comes at some point in our journey and whispers in our ear, what if it's not really true? What if it's not really true? What if you're wasting your life for no reason? What if he really wasn't the son of God? Has anybody here not heard that from the enemy? I think, honestly, we all struggle with doubt. And so we need to understand in this text that defeating doubt means that we live by faith, not by sight. So let's take a look at the text. And let's, let's come up with, a, very quickly, seven things. Very quickly, seven things. Now, seven things doesn't mean I have seven subpoints with each thing, like normal. So buckle up, here we go. Defeating doubt, living by faith, not by sight. 
How do we live by faith and not by sight? Number one, we need to connect with people of faith. Connect with people of faith. Notice verse 24, John 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. I like that, called the twin. We have twins in our family, Avery and Addie. Uh, we, we, Patty and I cross paths almost every day with a lady in our, has twins. And we have a new lady in our community who's going to have twins. And there's nothing like twins in your family. Thomas was a twin. And, and it is very specific here. He is very clear in identifying who this disciple is. He is one of the 12 that Jesus called. And he is singling Thomas out because Thomas was not present, this disciple, when Jesus appeared on the first Sunday of that first Easter on Resurrection Day. He was not present. That is the reason for his unbelief. He was not with the other disciples, and he missed out on an opportunity to see, to experience, and to develop faith in Christ. He was not with the other disciples. He had somehow, some reason, disconnected himself from those who were of the faith. And when he came into that room, their faith was swelled up. They were encouraged by what they had seen. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit, and Thomas was absent. Because he failed to connect with people of faith. I think that's one of the reasons why Sunday mornings are very strategically important. It was that first Sunday on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. He was not in, in with the other believers. He was not in the body. Somebody said, well, what's the importance? What's the reason for making sure that I come every Sunday? Because being with people of faith encourages, strengthens, and builds our faith. And when I'm with people of faith, it encourages, it builds my faith. And so we need to learn that we must connect with people of faith. That doesn't mean that we're to ignore or to disconnect from anybody who is an unbeliever. Because if we did that, we could not fulfill the Great Commission. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about connecting with people who have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and they are people who are walking by faith, not by sight. And there are a lot of people in your lives who claim to be Christians but are not walking by faith. They are walking by sight, and because of that, they are constantly, continually defeated in their walk, and they are discouraging to you. You need to make sure that you find and you congregate and you connect with people around you, people that have a strong faith in the resurrection power of Jesus, who see that you can overcome the obstacle, you can defeat the enemy. There are, I'm not talking about a pie in the sky, one of those wacko, pseudo, charismatic, you know, you know what I'm talking about? A realistic person who's in the Word of God, who sees the power of the resurrection displayed through the Scriptures, and they're walking by faith. They're not perfect, but they're living, and they're walking by faith, and they're an encouragement, and they're a comfort, and they're a strength in building up your faith. We must connect with people of faith on a regular, consistent basis if we are to overcome doubt and fear and discouragement. And despair. Connect with people of faith. Number two, we need to consider reliable witnesses. Notice the witnesses that when Thomas comes to the room, the second part of verse 25, so that other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. So when he came in, 
We're not told when he came in. We're not told how he come in, came in. We just know that he's there. All of a sudden, John just tells us that, that, that Thomas is there where Jesus had first appeared. And as soon as he's there, the other disciples tell him, how long do you think it took before Thomas came to the room and the other disciples testified about what they had seen and experienced with Jesus? How long? 30 seconds? How many? Anybody want to say a millisecond? You know, this, how can we keep silent if we have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in our lives through faith in him? Around those who have yet to experience and know about the resurrection of Jesus? There are relationships that we have had our whole lives and we have yet to witness to them about the resurrection power of Jesus as it has transformed our lives. And yet Thomas walks into the room and instantly I'm convinced the other disciples, they witness, they testify, they tell Thomas exactly what they have experienced and what they have come to know in the resurrection power of Jesus. He has defeated not only death but sin and he is alive and he reigns and he rules. The cross did not defeat him. The grave did not keep him. He is now alive. We have seen the Lord. We have experienced him personally. We have seen. Who have they seen? The Lord. He is sovereign over the cross, over the grave, and over sin. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. They are reliable witnesses who have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus personally. And so we must, if we are to have a strengthened faith and to overcome doubt, surround ourselves and not only connect personally with those who have a strong faith in God, but those who are reliable witnesses and who can testify of moments and experiences and times that they have had in their lives when they saw the mountain. I, I just I couldn't overcome it. And but Christ came into my life. I, I couldn't defeat this, but Jesus came into my life. And let me tell you about the time and the moment when, when I got this despairing and discouraging news and, and I turned to Jesus and, and I discovered the resurrection power of Jesus and that all things are possible now to those who believe. These are reliable witnesses that are telling, that are witnessing, that are proclaiming this marvelous, wonderful, resurrected Jesus and his sovereign power over death, sin, and the grave. And we must listen to these reliable witnesses because as we do, we will be strengthened by their... That's one of the reasons why I like to hear testimonies. Brother Gail and Brother Andy not long ago had everybody in a life group share their testimony about how they came to personal faith in Jesus. And when I hear those, those inspire me. They encourage me. Why? Because these people have experienced firsthand the power of the resurrection of Jesus in their lives and overcoming sin and transforming their lives. And as we listen to these witnesses, our strength, our faith is strengthened, and, and we are encouraged then to see that reality in our own lives. So as we connect with people of faith and consider reliable witnesses, we need to three confess our struggle with, with, with doubt and our struggle to believe. The fact is we all have trouble believing 
We all have trouble believing. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. He's not talking about me. You just lied in church. And at the end of the service, we're going to have an invitation. We expect the altar full right here. And if you didn't say that, I just wanted to let you know that you're in a unsafe company. You're in a, a, a group of liars here, so that makes us all sinners in need of grace. But we need to confess our struggle to believe. We all struggle to believe, myself included, yourself included. And Thomas here is confessing his difficulty in believing. Notice he says in verse 25, but he said to them, following their testimony about what they'd experienced and all of their excitement and all of their, you know, you know, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What's his response? You saw, I want to feel. You know who the feelers are? I got to feel it to believe it. There's some I got to see it to believe it, and there's some that need to feel it to believe it. I think he, he wanted to take it up one notch from what the other disciples had experienced. You know anybody like that? You may have experienced like that, but I got one up on you. My dad normally says the first liar never wins. Because as soon as you tell your lie, somebody else will tell a greater lie. As soon as you tell your experience about having an encounter with Jesus, somebody's going to come and try to bump, bump it up a level. So be last. <laughs> and then you can embellish and make yours greater than everybody else's. And I'm not sure that's exactly the intent of Thomas, but he, he, he does take it up a notch, doesn't he? You saw, but I want to touch. I want to feel. I don't want to just see. I want concrete evidence. These, these terms are non-negotiable. And he says, unless I do that, I will never believe. Thomas is not saying, I will never believe in the sense that I will never believe, but I will only believe unless this happens. If this happens, I will believe. I'm open to believing, but unless this happens, I will never believe. He puts conditions on his belief. And you know people today who are doing just that. I am going to put conditions on believing in Jesus, and if he will meet or measure up to these conditions, I will believe. We may not say that, but I know people who claim to profess faith in Jesus, but when he doesn't meet their conditions in life, he doesn't live up to their standards or their expectations, or they don't do it just like he wants, they want, or, or they desire, or they think it should happen, I, I just don't believe in him anymore. Because we come to him with a list of, of conditions and a list of expectations and a list of things that he must do. And if he doesn't do what we demand, then we just no longer believe. And yet Thomas is saying here, my belief is conditional. And the reason it's conditional is because I'm struggling my belief. Where do you go when you struggle with faith? Where do you go when life seems its darkest moments? Where do you turn and, and what kind of faith do you have when all of a sudden the unexpected takes place and 
you're caught between that rock and that hard place and you just don't see a way out and you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. We all struggle with belief. And I think the first way to defeat doubt is to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Wasn't there a man that was like that in one of the passages I haven't written here, and I can't remember what the name is. It's in uh, Mark 9 where he, he has a son, and his son is, is, uh, is, uh, is incredibly sick, and he brings his son to the disciples, and he asks the disciples for healing, and they can, and Jesus comes in off the mountain, and there's a squabble going on, and Jesus says, what's going on, guys? And the father finally says, it's my fault. I brought my son to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus then sort of rebukes them. He said, you know, oh, faithless generation, you know, and what's up with you people? You can't believe in me. And then finally the man confesses, Lord, I believe you can heal my son, but help my unbelief. He is confessing to God. God knows your thoughts. He knows your feelings. He knows your heart. He knows your condition. And it's okay to be honest with God and say, Lord, I don't see a way out. I do believe in you as my Savior, but Lord, help my unbelief in your power and your ability to help me overcome this circumstance or this situation. Lord, I believe but help my unbelief. And I think acknowledging the fact that you struggle with belief is, is one of the steps in overcoming doubt. Pride and arrogance and denial get you nowhere. But confessing your struggle, your hardships, your inadequacies, before a God who knows them anyway benefits us more than it benefits him because it brings us to the point now where on our knees and on our face, completely dependent upon relying on him, he can do it. You know, a lot of times we, we want to take the, we want to steer it, you know, and until we just take our hands off and say, Lord, I'm, I'm not sure how to get out of this, but I believe you can do it, but help my unbelief. Number four, we need to commit to the process of discovery. There's a process now that we've ad admitted our struggle with belief. There's a process. There's, there's a, there are steps we must go to and go through in order for, for doubt to become believed. Notice in verse 26, eight days later. Don't overlook that, eight days later. The first time Jesus appeared was on a Sunday. That was Easter Day, the first day of the resurrection. It's now a Sunday, the next Sunday. So there's been seven, or you might want to count out eight days, from Sunday to Sunday, the last time the disciples had been with Christ. And it's Sunday again, a week later. A whole week. His disciples were inside again. Where were they? They were where they should have been. In that same place, they encountered the resurrected power of Jesus. They weren't, would you leave that place? Would you have gone anywhere? This is where Jesus appeared. And we believe that a criminal returns to the 
in the crime scene, doesn't he? Well, certainly Jesus is just possibly, if he's going to reappear, he's going to come back to this place. And for seven days, I think these disciples stayed in that same place. And on the eighth day, on that following Sunday, here Jesus comes again. And guess who's there the whole time waiting for Jesus? Thomas was with them. Do you think after he came, after Jesus left, he was going to go anywhere else? I can imagine Thomas says, I, I don't care. If he had a cell phone and there was some family, I, I'm not going. I'm staying here. He wasn't going to leave the room. He was going to remain there. And I see in this text that as you sort of dissect a little bit, we see Thomas who is available in this process of discovery because he was with the, the other disciples who had already experienced Jesus resurrected. He was available to stay there and to hear their testimonies over and over and over again. He was approachable by the Lord because he was not going to leave the room and he was adaptable to the circumstance and the environment to wait as long as he needed to in order for that to take place. And Thomas is in this process of discovery and many of us have gone through various different degrees of a process that brings us to faith in Jesus, saving faith. But after that, there's a journey and a process that each of us must walk through in order to experience to walk by faith, not by sight, on a daily basis. And there will be challenges and opportunities and struggles and battles and sins and enemies and hardships and persecutions and sufferings and sacrifice that will take place in your life. And that all of that, I believe, is a process that God sovereignly allows to happen in your life to bring you to a place in which your faith is growing more and more and more as it progressively progresses along each and every day until he finally calls you home or he returns and takes us all together home. Your faith is, is not just a, a one-time thing. It's salvation, saving faith, and that's it. There's a serving faith, and the, the salvation faith is the, the establishment of our faith, and then the serving faith is a process of discovery that keeps going on and on and on. I don't know about you, but I've been doing this thing a long time, and I've never gotten to the place of, well, I'm a, I've arrived. Can I get amen from the pastors? There is no arrival. I don't care if you're 90 years old and been walking with Jesus for 72 years old. You're still in the process of walking by faith and not by sight. There will be challenges and difficulties and opportunities for your faith to be challenged, for doubt to rise. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think that's really a bummer, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great to just get there and arrive and then you're, I'm perfect. Why'd you clear your throat when I said that? Thank you. I appreciate that. Nine years ago, this person was on the search committee that brought me here. And when I say that, <clears throat> what is up with that? Anyway. Number five, as we digress, let's get back on target. Once I connect with people of faith, consider reliable witnesses, confess my struggle to believe, and commit to the process of discovery, I need to contemplate all the facts as presented. Verse 26, second part, although the doors were locked, 
Where is that familiar? It happened earlier when the disciples were there and Thomas wasn't there. The doors were locked. There it tells us the reason why the doors were locked. Why were the doors locked? Because they were in fear of the Jews. They were afraid for their lives. And we saw last Sunday how the locked doors couldn't have kept the Jews out anyway or in the Roman soldiers. They were, they were in this, this false sense of security believing that locked doors were going to keep the enemy out when all along that wasn't going to happen. We also think that the reason why John tells us there and, the, and, and now that the door is locked to help us see the omniscient, the omnipresent power of Jesus in his resurrected state that doors cannot keep him out of your life. And he will break whatever chains, whatever locks, whatever doors, whatever hindrances you have to prevent him from coming in and he will just invade your life. He's uninvited sometimes, isn't he? Because you have rooms in the, 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 the rooms of your heart where you have locked him out, and you think that's going to keep him out, it won't. God, you can be in my living room, and you can be in my kitchen, but in this room over here, you know, this is, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to keep from me. And the doors are locked, not because they're in fear of the Jews, but I think here, to help us be reminded once again of the omnipotent, omnipresent reality of Jesus. He came and stood among them. The doors are locked. He didn't come through the door. Like last time, he just appears. And, and the way that it's worded here in John's gospel presentation is it helps us understand that, like last time, he stood there for a while, not sure how long that while is, but he stood there, didn't say a word, didn't draw attention to himself. He came in and he simply just stood among them. He didn't stand in a corner. He didn't stand off to the side. He was among them, and no one saw him. These disciples had seen him last Sunday. They had recognized him. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and he stood there, and they didn't see him. Now, in their defense, I believe not only the ten were there, but there were many others who were present in the room, and I think the room was crowded with the disciples that had committed to follow Jesus, not just the ten. As before, there were more than, I think, just the ten who were in the room when Christ appeared. Mary and the two Marys were there and the two guys walking on the road to Damascus. And I think there were several others who were there. So the room was crowded. And, and in their defense, it, it, they could have been distracted, but maybe they were too busy arguing with Thomas again. I don't know. They're having a good Baptist debate about doctrine and theology. Pastor Mike. And so here we have he just standing there. And then he speaks, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Interesting that, that he says the same thing he said now twice. This is the third time he said this in his second appearance. The first time he said it to them because he said, hey, hey, you guys, it's a common greeting, but I think it's more than that. He's saying, hey, don't be startled. Be at peace. It's me, Jesus. I'm not a ghost. 
be at peace. And I think the second time we saw last week, the reason why he says, peace be with you again, is because he says, just after that, I'm going to send you out among wolves, as sheep among wolves, these, these people who want to persecute you and kill you and destroy you. I'm sending out to them, and, and I want you to go in peace. Trust me. Believe in me. Be at peace when you go out there. They cannot harm you or hurt you unless I allow them. So go in peace, knowing that, that, that I am sovereign, and I am Lord, and I am God of your life. I'm being You're being sent by me. And now he says peace. And I think here in this text, I believe he's speaking directly to Thomas. Because it doesn't say that he turned to Thomas, does it? There are other times when Jesus is addressing everyone, then he turns to the individual and he speaks directly to them. He doesn't turn, he's just standing there among them and he speaks to Thomas. And it could be, I I don't know, I wasn't there, so... (laughs) This is a speculation that he's speaking to Thomas because Thomas is the one who hasn't encountered Jesus and Thomas is the one who is the most anxious and nervous about the whole encounter. And he says, Thomas, peace be with you. And it's intended for the others, but I think it's directed primarily to Thomas. And he's saying, look, it's me. You know, when Christ presents himself, he always presents himself in ways that are factual. Not in feelings, but in factual ways and many times through the facts that are recorded in the word of God. And when we contemplate on the facts that are displayed and written in the word of God in the many testimonies of those who have seen and have encountered Jesus. Josh McDowell wrote a book Uh, evidence that demands a verdict and he was actually an unbeliever when he went to discredit and disprove as a lawyer uh, this whole speculation about the reality of Jesus and in his studies he actually became a believer because of the facts presented by the credible witness that are there and so what I want to present to you is this as Jesus presents himself to us in the midst of our doubts our fears our apprehensions and our worries that we have in whatever it is that we're we're facing with He always presents us with facts, and as these facts are presented in the Word of God, through the witnesses of God, we then see our faith grow and doubt begins to dissipate and disappear. Number six, communicate my faith openly. Once I connect with people of faith, consider reliable witnesses, confess my struggle with belief, commit to the process of discovery, and contemplate all the facts presented Did I read that text, though, when I talked about? Let's jump back to number, yeah, no, here we go. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, peace with you. And then he said to Thomas, notice what he said. Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. How did Jesus know Thomas said that? He's all-knowing. Does that frighten you? He's all-knowing. He not only hears what we speak, but he hears what we think. Should that frighten you? I know some of you. It should. And if you knew me, you you would say it should frighten you as well. It does. It frightens me that he's all-knowing. He wasn't present in the room when Thomas demanded and put these, put these conditions on Jesus. And then he says simply, hey, Thomas, he didn't say you said. He just simply said, put your finger here. Put, come on. 
And he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Contemplate the facts as presented before you. Look, I am here. Here's my finger. Here's my hand. Here's my side. Look at the facts. Stop disbelieving and believe. I'm presenting you the facts. And here I am. Here's my hand. Here's my side. Look, examine for yourself. Here are the facts. And Jesus opens his eyes now, presenting him these facts of him being raised from the dead. Here I am. Examine them and believe. I think sometimes we who are Christians have a tendency to believe that, that while we walk by faith, not by sight, that we have no facts to, base up, to, to back up our faith. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? I gave a Bible to someone this week who graduated, and I gave the Bible and said, I'm, 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 I'm sorry if this offends you, but I'm a pastor, and when I give people who graduate from, from high school, I give them Bibles. I didn't know if they're Christians or not. And I said, you know, this is one of the greatest literary books of all time. Why would I do that? Because there are some facts here. My faith is just not a pie-in-the-sky thing. It's a faith that is substantiated by fact. And those facts strengthen my doubts and my fears, and my worries, and my concerns. And when I open this book, it gives me fact. And I put my faith in those facts, and my faith is strengthened, and doubt disappears. Number six, communicate my faith openly. Thomas answered to him, my Lord and my God. Notice Thomas does what? Does he step up and put his finger in the hand? Does he, does he touch Jesus at all? Is there any record of that? There's none whatsoever. I think Thomas, after seeing Jesus, is like, he, he can't believe what he sees. Eyes are bugged out and his Chin is dropped, and he's standing there in utter amazement that Jesus, his Savior and his Lord, is standing there. And Thomas makes one of the greatest confessions that has yet to be made in any of the Testaments. There's not a, it, it's greater than Simon Peter's testimony of who Jesus is. It is the greatest of all. He says, my Lord and my God. He just burst it out. My Lord and my God, he is Lord. He is sovereign, not only sovereign over my life, but he is sovereign over the cross, over the grave, and over sin. He is Lord of lords. He is sovereign, and he is God. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, born of a virgin, sinless perfection, dying on the cross for sins that I committed, now raised from the dead so that I might, through faith in him, have victory. He is God. He is Lord. But notice it is a personal pronoun. He is my Lord and my God. He is not theirs. He is mine. And I wonder, is he yours? He is God, and he must be Lord of our lives. And, and I don't know about you, but when I struggle with unbelief, when I struggle with doubt, there's something that happens when I start proclaiming faith in God. 
I start speaking it. If you ever struggle with doubt, and struggle with unbelief, and struggle with fear, get some scriptures and write down some statements and just start blurring out how great, how awesome, how sovereign, how divine he is. And he is sitting on the throne, reigning and ruling. He is Lord of lords. And, and just start talking about and, and hear it because faith comes by faith comes by hearing. And sometimes the only voice you need to hear sometimes is your own voice. Speaking truth to yourself. People may think you're crazy, so do it in the closet maybe. Or maybe in your car. Make sure you have one of those little devices in your ear that think you're talking on the phone. And just blurt out wonderful statements about this personal relationship you have with Jesus and how incredibly prominent and powerful he is in your life. And you might want to keep a journal about all the wonderful things that God's done in your life and review that from time to time, and that will do nothing but strengthen your faith. And lastly, we need to sub and continue the journey by faith. I've run out of time. Continue the journey by faith. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? This is kind of a rebuke in the form of a question. And I think it's not only for the benefit of Thomas, but I think it's probably benefit for the other disciples, although Jesus is speaking to Thomas. The other disciples were there, and they heard what Jesus said to Thomas. And I think it's not only for Thomas, but it's for the benefit of the other disciples. And he said, hey, boys, you believe because you have seen, right? Right. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Remember, guys. You won't always see me here. And you're going to have to walk by faith, not by sight. And you won't see me with you and among you very much longer. I'm only going to be here for a certain amount of days. You're going to need someone other than me. And he's the Holy Spirit. Because those who are going to see me after I'm gone, will see me, but they will see me through the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit that will breathe faith into them, and by faith, they will see me, know me, and experience the power of my resurrection in their lives. As we close, two types of faith, saving faith and serving faith. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 says, for not all have faith. The reality is that not everybody in the world that we live in has faith, especially faith in Jesus, in particular faith in the resurrection. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith it is impossible to to please God, to be acceptable to him. Hebrews 2, 8, 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. Notice, for by grace you were saved. Grace is a free gift from God, but so is faith. Faith is a gift from God at salvation, in which he breathes through the regenerous work of the Holy Spirit, gives us the ability and the power Faith is not something I have to muster up. You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to, I don't wish we could camp here longer, but we don't, and we can't. We don't have time. I'm out. It's 12.01. I know. I get it. It's time to eat. But he breathes in us. He, 
He energizes his work in us, and he is the one who gives us the faith. If we'll look to him, rely upon him to put faith and trust in him. Because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus the Lord, and believe in your heart that Jesus that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is he who puts faith in you to believe in the resurrected power of Jesus. And if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus today, I'm here to tell you, you don't have saving faith. And you need saving faith. And the only one who can give you saving faith is Jesus himself. And the only way to get this saving faith is from Jesus as you turn to him, turn to Jesus. Thomas had to see, had to turn, had to see, had to experience Jesus personally when we experience him personally it is he who gives us the ability to believe they're saving faith but they're serving faith we walk by faith not by sight second Corinthians 5 7 Hebrews 11 1 says now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen faith is the assurance of things hoped for And the assurance or the conviction of things not seen. After saving faith, we will struggle with doubt. You will. Though with circumstances and situations, obstacles, barriers, sin, the enemy, all kinds of things that will come into your life that will rob you of your belief in him. I'm convinced that at the root of all sin is not only pride, but unbelief. I'm convinced that at the root of every fear is unbelief. Every hesitation, every preoccupation, every worry is unbelief. You will struggle with serving faith. In your attempt to serve him, to follow him, there will be times markers in your life where you will be tempted to experience through a crisis of faith whether you trust him or not and I hope and pray that you will not let doubt win but you will turn to Jesus who alone can help you defeat doubt let's pray Your prayer.